Hello and welcome to Keyframes, a podcast about anime. I'm your host, Ben Halliburton. With me today is Andy. Hey, hey. Duncan. Hey there. And a Jeff. Yellow. Yep, we finally broke out of the British doldrums and we now have four people to talk about uh, studios and their distinctive styles. And after the break, we're going to be talking about Sigurdrifa again. Sinyoku no Sigurdrifa or Warlords of Sigurdrifa. We'll be talking about the latest Love Live and we'll be talking about the not so latest Love Lab. <laughs> Say that five times fast. But mm. for starters, let's go ahead. Were, I thought you were pausing then, Ben, so that one of us tries it. And no, no, no. No, I pause for the, the listener. Um, we provide both entertainment and an educational service. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, tongue edge. twisters aren't in fashion anymore. We're bringing them back. Duncan, explain how you picked this, this topic. So, anyway, I'm not sure how we got here, but let's, let's deal with what we've got. Um, so... So if you ask anyone to name a Western animation studio, the answer you will probably get is Disney. But if you ask someone to name a Japanese animation studio, well, the answer you'll probably get is Ghibli, to be honest. But if they have slightly wider and more defined interests, then you might get a few other names as well. And you might get creators named in a partnership with those studios. And I wanted to give everyone a chance to to think about which studios they've they found which really resonated with with them, and maybe to explore the different things which shape those studio cultures, whether it's a, a structure, an auto director, or a big old commercial partnership. Um, JC Sharp because they're trash. <laughs> Sorry, carry on. Just like you, Andy. Yeah, baby. <laughs> I, I, I swear, I was watching something where that I know Andy loved, and JC Staff was one of the was the lead studio, and I wanted to throw it in your face, but I didn't write it down because I'm actually a nice person. So I'll be look I'll be looking it up while Duncan uh, continues food, his extremely food, erudite food, in- introduction. Food Wars. <laughs> food Wars is JC Staff, and I love Food oh, there Wars. There you go. There you I go. mean, you love a lot of things. I do. Yeah. JC Staff's done a lot of trash, and I do like some trash. So. You you have a prejudice, man. That you need <laughs> to get past with JC They did Konosuba. No, they didn't. Studio they Dean, did. you do that every freaking time. Duncan, <laughs> please stop talking. Oh dear. Well, and Andy's horrific prejudice against uh, Studio <laughs> JC aside, um, I mentioned Disney partly because I think the way we think of animation studios is really influenced by the 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 way that they're structured in the West. That we've tended to have a couple of monolithic studios for many years it was disney and it was uh warner brothers um and then maybe hanna barbera if you you stretch it um <laughs> but in japan you because you have this plurality of studios it's clearly come from a very different place and i wanted to kind of figure out where, why that happened to an extent and like my in point was okay so who is the japanese uh disney like Ghibli was is kind of what we've been led to believe is it in modern terms, partly just because it's put so many big family films out. But I think that's kind of wrong when you're trying to to think about the structure of um, Japanese studios because that they're they're relatively latecomer to the, the the market, whereas Disney's equivalent is actually probably um, better framed as who is the equivalent to Walt Disney. 
rather than <laughs> what was the equivalent to Disney. And in that case, the answer's um, Tezuka, because mm-hmm. no one, I think, even now, even with someone like Miyazaki, has the same impact that Tezuka did on the early stages of um, Japanese animation. Um, he's He came in with just such huge clout behind him in terms of manga already, and just basically studios were built around him. Uh, to begin with, he was working with Toei, but then he fil- formed his own uh, studio, Mushi Productions, and that put out things like uh, Astro Boy and Dororo, and uh, it was just massive. It just completely... He was a, a beer moth which dominated the industry for a, a good decade. But the problem with Tezuka is that he is a genius and he was incredibly, amazingly influential, but he was a complete workaholic and an absolute tyrant. And <laughs> he basically... Speaking of Ghibli, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and he essentially he drove the studio, if not to collapse, but he, his... When you look, Mushi Productions collapsed in 1973, I think just due to problems with funding stuff. It wasn't directly due to mismanagement by him. It was just uh, uh, an unfortunate series of of problems coalescing. But when you look at the studios which are formed afterwards, in its immediate after effect, you can see a sort of reaction against Tezuka. Like, from Mushi, you get Madhouse, you get Sunrise, you get Peridot, you get Kirani, and technically even Shaft, when it started out, was staffed by Mushi graduates. And there's a lot different from those studios, but I think they're all looking at what Tezuka, the way Tezuka had managed Mushi and, and reacting against that. Like, I think the two it's probably most noticeable in are uh, Sunrise and Kirani. Sunrise, um, because it deliberately went, okay, we don't want auteurs. We, we are specifically going against that in two ways. Firstly, we're going to be producer-led rather than director-led. Um, Secondly, instead of um, looking for manga and light novels to adapt, we're going to look for commercial partners. We're going to look for toy companies who we can uh, uh, partner with and uh, produce uh, mecha anime. And mm-hmm. they fa- found people like Bandai, who they made the entire Gundam series with. And this new revenue stream basically changed where the power in the, the relationship was from a... Uh, a creator who uh, could say, "Okay, I, I, I want you to make sure this anime is like my my manga, and that this this anime has to support my manga sales." To someone going, "Okay, uh, you have to put our product in it. That's about it. Go, <laughs> go wild, uh, and get, and also at, just at least at first, and then later on, yeah, but, <laughs> it's a bit more complicated. Yeah, obviously, but but it it gets." In terms of the way they were funded, that meant instead of funding basically being something which companies like Bandai are, are massive and have huge amounts of, of money to do it. So, so a promotional series, they could, that, that suddenly, Sunrise suddenly had big budgets comparative to a lot of other studios just because they had chosen to have these commercial partnerships. So they, they became really well known for producing smooth animation and this moving away from the creatives and the 
creative ideas to the production and the products being what drives it created a very different studio and and whether that you just say well that created like three decades of gundam (laughs) and and, among uh, other things I, i think like it's it's like uh Edward Norton is like famous for doing one for himself, one for the bank balance. And I feel like Sunrise have sort of ended up a bit like that, that they take on, still take on a lot of creative um, projects from companies like Bandai. But they, I think it's given them a, a stability, which notably they're a, a, a series which have been a, a studio which have been around for almost four decades now, which is remarkable in the anime no landscape. Joke. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the the other thing is Kyorani, which I mentioned because uh, they were founded by a, a husband and wife t- who met um, working for Mushi, and they their what they did different was not the the structure, but the working conditions that that they decided right no more or working the way Tezuka uh, wanted us to, because he was famous for just working his animators to the bone and expecting everyone to pull, like, ridiculous long hours just because he did. And instead, Kyonani became something where not only did it try and look after its animators in having, like, reasonable deadlines and reasonable working hours, it tried to push equality really strongly and to be inclusive, and I think, like, that's interesting that you can have get a studio which is shaped by its ability to, to just offer people, say, right, if you want to work in somewhere which is just going to give you a great quality of life, it's going to focus on, on, on producing the, not lots of anime, but really well-produced ones. And, it, and, it, and over the years, it's just developed this reputation for just quality rather than quantity and for being... Like if if I if I had the talent to be an animator, the 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 uh, uh, the studio I'd want to work for would be Kirani because they just really looked after their employees well. It seems like an, a, a place which attracts people just on the not necessarily on the uh, creative freedom it offers them, but just the the amazing work life it offers them. Uh, I I think like. When I first suggested this topic, like, and you guys are probably going to, there's probably going to be a good few examples of this. Many of the things I initially thought of were studios which are auteur-led. And I think it's, it it was interesting to do a little digging and find out that that's not the case with, with many that, Mm -hmm. that you get things where it's, it's Mushi begets Sunrise, who begets Bones, who beget whatever. And, and like this, there's this wide chain of dispersed, um, people and that companies can afford to just, do work as a tween studio and then put out their first original series. And mm-hmm. and it's always great to see that happen too. Cause it, I mean, as much as, as nice as it is to see these Titans like Tatsunoko or Toei or Mushi or even more recent ones like Sunrise, like just be around forever and be kind of a, a given that they're going to exist. It is nice to see like evolution in the industry. Yeah. And like, I mean, when you talk about that, like I'm looking at the the uh, the page for sun for sunrise, and like they've 
split off a lot of oh, yeah. really oh, really yeah. important like Manglobe and Bones and mm. yeah they've they've and that's the same way with uh with Gynax which now the current Gynax has virtually no one there besides um a couple of the originals who are just still presiding over a completely different company but like people when people when a uh, Gynax split off had people split off to form Trigger and people are like oh this is so incredible and it's just it's kind of the thing Maybe this is just because of my the current political situation in my country, but but uh, people are like, oh, this has never happened before, and it's like, no, it's been happening all the time. You just haven't been paying attention until now. Um, people are like, oh, Trigger splitting off from Gynax, and like all the most talented people are leaving to form their own studio. I'm like, yeah, back in 2003, that's how that's how Gonzo came to be. Was that a bunch of people split off from Gynax to form Gonzo? Um, and like, this is kind of how studios reproduce it mm. seems like it, it uh, seems to be far more viable in japan than yes. it does over here and it, i don't know why it doesn't tend to con- consolidation in the same way mm-hmm. i wonder if it's just this distribution that's most mostly in the the west um uh our prestige animation studios have tended to focus on uh feature films whereas if you're producing for television the budgets are lower and so you can afford to to be a studio which works works in that uh, field. Mm-hmm. I, I, streaming I now, I wonder if uh, places like uh, Netflix are going to be ushering in a lot more uh, a lot more animation studios, especially with COVID and making it that much more difficult for actors to be performing live. You know, mm-hmm. shifting over mm-hmm. to animation. Now I remember I listened to the uh, I listened to the Scrubs rewatch podcast. that's hosted by Zach Braff and Donald Faison, and they have both alluded to how like it is a great time to be someone with a with a recording set up in your closet and a, a reasonably famous actor with a record. Like they're just getting hit up by people who are just like, "Hey, do you want to like audition for this role?" And if you get it, four weeks from now you'll record three dozen lines in your closet, and then we'll give you a paycheck in the mail. Like. So yeah, I, I do wonder if a more decentralized model is gonna is going mm-hmm. to incentivize more more studios being dispersed and working from home, yeah. and even all levels of talent working from home. Yeah, but, and I think like I wonder if that will also see more flowering of new studios going from just being as we talked about like studios which like Shaft, which for years was just doing in betweens and, and keys, and and then suddenly. Along, they do a couple of shows, and then I think it's their third or fourth anime. Someone, this director comes along, <laughs> and his name's Shinbo, he and he walks it off the street, and he's like, "Hey, give that kid a job." <laughs> but, and yeah, but there's this shaft before Shinbo, and then the shaft after Shinbo, and mm-hmm. and like his his impact on that's really impressive. And I don't know if if that's something one of you guys has looked into particularly. Well, I looked into it a little bit. I think that the issue, and this goes back to what you said about auteurs, Duncan, is that I think the anime industry knows that people, especially especially foreign, but even even um, even Japanese people, don't really have the attention and, and energy to follow like beyond directors and maybe some writers and maybe some voice actors. And so with Shaft, I think it actually created a kind of weird situation where. Shinbo was the uh, executive director or the supervising director on mm-hmm. all these projects where there was really someone working under him mm-hmm. um, who was who was doing all the actual directing. And I can't imagine that Shinbo did more than like check by like once or twice a day to be like, hey, how's this going? Let me show me some show me some takes. And 
that girl's head needs to be positioned yes. at a slightly yeah. angle to side. And and that's the, and the issue is is just that like taking like using auteur dynamics with directors and even studios um, as a way of like marketing and creating your presence. But at the same time, you're trying to like, you don't, you want to avoid the situation that's currently happening all over the anime industry where all like the greats are, are now in their sixties and seventies and want to retire, just can't work as much. (laughs) And it's like production IG having to get all these, all these old storied properties and they're rebooting them with new people directing and writing for them in the hopes that they can create the new rock stars that they can be the new auteur and that sort of crisis um is being responded to very variously and i think that it remains to be seen for the most part with shaft um if just having people like get their chops as the actual director under shinbo is going to allow one of them to become the next Shinbo for the studio mm-hmm. or if what they're doing is just trying to milk to milk all the the public profile out of a director who's simply spread too thin at this point if we, if he was actually if he was actually directing all the shows mm-hmm. that he that he yeah. supposedly is directing it would be impossible so yeah no i mean Shinbo has said explicitly that he mostly is there to just sign off on things and <laughs> when he was hired he was hired specifically because of his sort of avant-garde style which has become more or less the shaft house style and they've very like consciously tried to make that into you know their sort of recognizable fingerprints on a, a show and, and that's why andy hates shaft <laughs> sorry well, yeah, yeah. that's why andy hates shaft <laughs> and yeah like you i mean like- uh Two shows that I love, you know, near and dear, Monogatari, and now Arkara Under the Bridge, which I've finally been bullied into watching. Uh, <laughs> both, you know, both are, you know, directed by Shinbo and somebody else completely. But if you told me that, you know, Arkawa Under the Bridge was like a walk-on girl style, uh, you know, same cast but different characters you know, spinoff, I would believe you just because of how, you know, how tight the, the, the shaft style, the clutches are on both of those shows, even though they're, you know, mm-hmm. they're both adaptations of completely different things. Uh, you know, the, 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 the shared cast also probably plays into that, but yeah. They, and even just, just uh, wait until you watch uh Natsuno Arashi and then you'll get another like, Oh, it's just the same people and the same yeah. style for every yeah, different story. Wasn't there a controversy a while back where it turns out that Shimbo just hires the people he has like a semi crash on. <laughs> I don't recall that, but it, it might I be mean, a different studio, that's, but it's definitely, I think it's thing. someone I've, I've heard that. I don't think it's Shinbo, but I do think that there are definitely directors who just like, like working with certain people mm. for whatever reason. And yeah. that's just who they <laughs> cast every time. There's actually a really interesting, a post in the show notes, someone transcribed interviews, um, where, uh, yeah, the guy who voices Aragi Hiroshi Kamiya interviews all the other like major voice actors about how they, like how they got the part, did they know anything about the series, and so on and so forth. And it's very funny that there are certain ones who are like, oh yeah, I auditioned, and I auditioned for Sinjogahara, and I didn't get it, but then they had me re-audition for this. And then for a couple, I think it is specifically the the voice actress for Sinjogahara and the voice actress for Hanakawa, where they're like, oh yeah, I was just asked asked to show up, and they gave me the part. And it's just kind of like, okay, so there is a little bit of a preferring to work with certain individuals and willing to like kind of short circuit the supposed 
meritocratic process of finding voice talent in an anime. Hey, having an eye for talent is itself meritocratic. Why would you? Why would you stop on that merit? <laughs> there's, there's, there's also there's also the other angle of the producers wanting to get that person to get more fame and continue her fame and rise as a seiyu as well as a lot of stuff is seiyus have a big draw for a lot of people. I know people love, say, for example, Mizuki Nana. As soon as she was in Symphogear, that increased the fucking viewing count of that anime from next to nothing to fuck tons. So, you know, it does it does make a difference. Uh, so, yeah. I was going to ask you, Andy, about um, things like Love Live and how and the, the studios that produce them into, and their connections with record companies and stuff. Uh, the, like, and mobile game which, companies, even. Yeah, yeah. Like, so I mean, it, this is the I guess the new era of of cross promotional tie and stuff because Love Live did was a game first and then they turned they animated it to make um, more popularity. Same with IMAS, same with Princess Connect, uh, same with the whole bunch of shows that we really connected with this season or just in general. Like most of them are mobile games. Even fucking Overlord now it's a mobile game. But that doesn't count because that's the other way around. But my main point is is that there is now a big contingency, especially from China, to get these mobile games animated um, to get more to get more yeah. uh, players. I uh, think, like, away, away from the, the one, the the, the spe- specific, like, idol ones, like, there was Psy Games recently coming over with a, a lot of money to, for things like uh, Princess Connect and uh, Rage of Bahamut, where it could just, like, throw money at the animation. You got these gorgeously animated and, like, could hire really high, could, like, offer someone, like, big money to come and work on their show and... and give it all the polish it, it needed and or even even the weirder one which was uma musume which is an anime but it's meant to be a game that's been in development hell for like two years like who the fuck knows when that game's going to come out <laughs> uh <laughs> it's just not out yet um and it's got a second anime as well now it's got like a dumb little like small chibi series i guess just to increase mm. the popularity yeah, you, get a lot, but... you get a lot of those these days just li- little chibi series just mm. as like okay there's enough interest in this for something but not for a full series and so they just put out a chibi series yeah. and it yeah, just and keeps then... interest going and keeps it in the eye and it keeps sales going because they can wrap some dlc exclusive in the in mm. the in the dvds and then that increases dvd sales and like you're mm. right it's a very cheap flash animation type stuff like speaking of of, of which um we we have the outliers, the, the the very strange, literally to one one man studio. Well, not quite literally one man studios, but not far off to, with things like um, uh, Kimono Friends. Like yeah, that like how many people were on the staff for that? It was I think it was under ten. I think it was it, like it was ten or under. It was definitely like there was a, definitely a big thing where people were very happy they managed to animate a wheel rolling. <laughs> um, on like the third episode or something because they previously just weren't rolling wheels um, yeah uh, very small amount I was actually thought you were going to go the other way which is the studios you don't really hear about for um, English or British consumption I'm thinking of stuff like Shin A Animation who are huge um, who mostly do stuff like Crayon Shin Chan Doraemon okay. Uh, and, uh, you know, like Ninja Hattori-kun, like the really kiddie, kiddie anime studios, as well as um, Aiken, who did uh, Suzai-san, 
And they've, like, they've been running in for, since 1969, Aiken. That's at the same time as Tezka. So, yeah, uh, they're, 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 they're like the equivalents of um, The Simpsons, these TV shows which have been running non-stop for uh, 30 years or more. And just like the same studio has just been handling that and just yeah. putting it out week after week after week. Pretty much. Mm. I mean, they have got some stuff that... I mean, Sazai-san is 1969 to current, which is fucking insane. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, that's cheap. That's, like, that's one of the longest-running TV shows in human history. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Longest-running animation, I think... I thought at least Archers beats... The, oh, no, Archers is a radio show. Yeah. But, yeah, uh, definitely animation. Insane. Mm. Um, and, yeah, like, there's there's a whole bunch... Like, they, they did... I've done a whole bunch of stuff. Bono Bono, which I've talked about, which I quite like. But mm-hmm. it's all kids shows that no one, that we don't really obviously have much interest in, but they're still huge and they're still running. Uh, and like you said, they don't really have many. Well, saying that, Crayon Shinchan, that was where Science Zaru's uh, director came from, mm-hmm. um, whose name I've now embarrassingly forgotten, even though I love him. No, I'm going to let you twist. Are you thinking you are No, why'd you do that? We could have had fun. You are Thank you, sir. Thank you, Duncan. I love you. <laughs> I mean, he's he. That is is a very one man studio in terms of its character, at least. Um, yeah, like that's him basically creating a studio so he can make um, whatever he wants. Like, I think he it started out out doing some work on uh, as. Even while he was directing Ping Pong, he actually created this secondary studio to actually just like do some of the bits the main studio didn't want to. Then mm. he, he was working... And then I think he, his first real production was the um, the Night is Short Walk-On Girl. And then... No, didn't he do Devil Man Cry Baby before that? No, that's that's one year later. Oh, is it? Oh, okay. Yeah. My bad. It goes just... uh, um, Night is Short, Lou, Devil Man... Um, then we're the stuff. Then we're actually up to relatively uh, recent things, like uh, Isaac. You're forgetting and... that the first that the first thing they did was they made that one really weird off-putting episode of Adventure Time, <laughs> where, <laughs> where they were. Oh, I like that episode. The food chain one. Uh, well, that's because you have terrible taste, Antis. <laughs> I might be biased slightly, so it's very Uasa, which is why I don't like it and why you like it. So, um, but no, like it, it's interesting because like. I remember when I was watching the credits for speaking of Adventure Time for Summer Camp Island and like Science Saru did the opening credits animation for that. It's very weird that even when you think of like consummately auteur studios, they're still making money during their the downtime in their mm-hmm. schedule, like mm-hmm. doing tweening or doing colors or doing like contract animation for completely like just completely other other productions that have nothing to do with the main brand of the of the studio and i think that like it's very instructive that as we talk about individual examples which hopefully is where we're going to move on to soon um of studios and and their specific style footprints that these are illusions that are created by the studios um especially for the most like the most notable ones when you think of gynax you think of a very specific number of visual flourishes directors and productions and that's just because there's a certain like trimming effect that the human brain does where we forget 
that uh, all the weird Gynax shit people made, yeah. or all like the not very shafty, or, or like, the Makaku Mik- City actors, or something, yeah. whatever that or, one or was, the, or the JC staff uh, stuff, which Andy actually loves. Yes. Loves. Well, JC staff works on fucking everything, so no wonder they're on like, something good as well so as something the, the, bad. The most, the most recent uh, of their shows we talked about was Cat Soup. So uh, yeah. yeah. They were the main, uh, like, Gynax with the lead studio, but, like, a lot of um, his and her circumstances is JC staff. Mm. Um, and it's just very weird that we have, and possibly this is also, like, the baggage of Disney, even though Disney also uses, like, contract studios at times. But, like, the idea that, like, there's a studio that, wor- that like, is the lead studio during production, and then there is ev- everyone else. And you just kind of mutter their names as quietly under your breath as you can so you can get back to talking about Disney. Mm-hmm. Disney. Yeah, yeah it's, it's like, when tr- like when we had Darling and the Franks, and then there was a big argument of how much that was Trigger and how much that was someone else. Oh, yeah. And that's also how like- much that was A1, how much that was Trigger. And it was, a, it was an A1-led program, A1-led production, I believe, but Trigger was doing a lot of work on it and so is it the more famous like because people don't really know what a1's trademark is it's kind of like studio dean or something where it's just a show a studio that like does everything and sometimes some of the things it does are actually quite nice but otherwise it's just literally a big undifferentiated blob of people working together mm. as far as we see on the outside yeah no i imagine like but then there's also sort of all those korean ones that are at the end of every like and show that you'd have no idea like dr movie you're like <laughs> i don't know what they I love do dr. Movie. they're on fucking everything like i assume it's some animation studio or coloring stuff but yeah um they do everything moving on i've got nothing more to say yeah well let's go ahead and move to if you if you think it's all right duncan let's go ahead and just move to like individual studios yeah. with big that like have made a big impression on us about like when you hear a studio is working, a certain studio is working on a project, um, either you're like, oh, I don't care, or mm-hmm. you have a specific thing in your head. And I think that, like, as Jeff said, Shaft is, is the biggest one of these, where Shaft is such a strong house style that is, even when Shinbo is not particularly involved, still has a very, a set of both visual tropes and just broader artistic rubrics that are applied. Mm-hmm. Um which makes them all kind of look like Monogatari spinoffs. Yeah, I mean, uh, they, they got me to watch one episode of Assault Lily Bouquet, which is just like, it's yeah. trash and don't watch it. But you, you see you see the, the fingerprints there even, even though it's just like a big thigh, like near Automata ripoff show. <laughs> I I mean, also we're forgetting, I guess, the really big, the big, big, big fish we've never, we've all forgotten about is Madhouse. Madhouse mm. are fucking huge, and they produce like every time I see their. But what would you call something. like the Madhouse house style to be? Incredible, good, just good, beautiful yeah. budget. And, yeah, just incredible, just incredible. <laughs> like I, I mean, Madhouse and Mapper, right? Mapper came out from Madhouse, is my understanding of my belief. I could well, be. I'll double check that while yeah. you're talking. <laughs> but like you know, I I heard that Chainsaw Man is getting an anime, and it's going to be done by Mapper, and I'm like fucking a. I like Mapper. I. They've done, uh, they've done a, you know, um, uh, what was the one that was set in Kyoto, uh, in Hiroshima, sorry, with the bombs. Uh, what was that? Uh, in this corner of the world. That's it. Oh, Thanks, yes. Duncan. They did that. Like that was their first. In Hiroshima day. with the bombs. In Hiroshima with the bombs. <laughs> Shaka when the walls fell. <laughs> <laughs> um. <laughs> 
like and they 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 again I can't just because Map is such a new studio I don't think they've got that auteur style yet. But Madhouse has been around for years, and it, like all I think is, I just know that whatever show they've got in good hands, it's going to be faithful to the original manga, and it's going to be fucking gorgeous. Like that, I guess, is my take on Mapper. Yeah, to- Mad Madhouse was founded in 1972 by ex Mushi Pro people, and then Mapper was founded in 2011 by Masao Maruyama, who was a founder of Madhouse, and he's already left to to found uh, Studio M2 in 2016. So he <laughs> likes founding studios, it seems like, or he's well, difficult to work with. Who apparently, knows? Apparently, there's a rumor that there's like some really shady businesses like operating under Madhouse because of how much money they've got for shows that seemingly are really auteur and probably won't be doing that much like sales wise. But just like yeah. how are so how they're getting so much money? Um, but yeah, no, they're Madhouse. Madhouse are beautiful. I love that studio. Uh, <laughs> I, I know you do. <laughs> It has. It gave you Yuri on Ice. It did give us Yuri on Ice. That's not. It gave. It that. gave you Kakigurui. <laughs> it did. Like they, really? look, not. Not everything's great. Okay, but they. Okay. they <laughs> Just gave those us, two things specifically. They gave us Redline. They gave us. Uh, they gave us the first season of One Punch Man. You know, they've done some bangers. Was it the good season? Juju Kaisen, Gymnastic yeah. Samurai. They seem like a, a studio which is happy to bring in someone for a, se- a, a series and then let them go rather than having necessarily a, a stable of um, directors who they use again and again. I wonder but, if they're more contract-based. Yeah, this is, some, this is something I actually don't understand is like some studios do have house directors and some just pull in, I guess, people working on contract or something. Yeah. And I don't really have the understanding of how... How a studio that is not director, I guess it's what you said, Duncan, about how it's producer led and they just have the producers have directors that they know and think will be good for a certain project mm-hmm. and they bring them in. Um, but I can't imagine being an anime director with how up and down that business goes and just being like, boy, I hope someone contacts <laughs> me to, to work on an anime. I like, well, like, like I, would, I would much prefer over here. Like, yes, I imagine yeah. so, too. And they do fine. So maybe I'm just over exaggerating how that sort of thing works in my head as long as you're okay directing somebody else's ideas then you're probably fine yeah yeah as long as you don't make a massive flop then everything's good (laughs) (laughs) even then probably if you just show up and do work it's it's probably hard to like get pinned with being the guy responsible for the flop at that point yeah I mean, one of the things about Sunrise, which was interesting, is like it's went from like one studio, which was primarily focused on things like Gundam and Ideon, to like literally eleven sub studios. Yeah, plus, I saw that. Plus CGI <laughs> studio, plus in between studio, plus like studios which are specifically created just to do close collaborations with other studios, and like. It's basically got a studio for every different uh, t- type of thing it makes, and then like, so it's kind of got both best of both worlds. It's got these sub units within it, which, for instance, um, Studio Four is it did things like Planetes, which is like one of my favorite, mm-hmm. but is also oh, Studio Four of it, of Sunrise. Okay, yeah, no, not Studio but, Four Degrees C, but also also is like the Prime Studio, which worked on Ultraman for like thirty years. And then you've got ones which do work for, like, did Batman the animated series, which is like a really weird thing to 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 remember that a lot of that work was done by Sunrise, which is really strange to think about. Yeah, and you can think about like 
the fact that a lot of American cartoons were driven by like overseas animation from Japan during the bubble and post bubble era when like they had large companies that could take on a lot of work. And then after the bubble pop, they have large companies that desperately need work. And meanwhile, U.S. economy is doing fine, at least until 2008. Uh, so they can take on and they can do Batman, the animated series, and they can do all sorts of other stuff like that. Supernatural, uh, they can show, shows like the Centurions, which apparently Studio Seven worked on. Um, Centurions Power Extreme. <laughs> so like, yeah, like it. It's weird to watch how because we think of yeah, like you said, we think of them as these like contained units, but like with Sunrise specifically building studios that are meant to do contract work, presumably to support other studios doing internal work mm. like that. And I think that's that's probably a very very good uh way of uh, building its contact base for for its uh producer-led model like if you, mm-hmm. if you have a studio which just does in between work you're going to come across the the people you will want to bring in for your other projects and they'll and they'll be, you'll have actually worked with them in some some respects and i can imagine like that being something which is specifically done just okay yeah we'll scout we think this guy's got some potential we'll we'll do a collaboration with the studio he's working with currently and like that we'll get get him in for a full series mm-hmm. and like it's a lot more practical way and a lot, lot less emotional um should we d- you discuss the 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 like the elephant in the room which is ghibli and uh it, it's twin well it, it's that it's like i guess it's 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 star and maybe it's 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 satellite which is um miyazaki and well, uh, i mean jibby's also got a spin-off studio now called studio ponok because well, they closed up, they closed down in-house work, yeah. and then they kind of, and then deceptively kind of made uh, a satellite studio that yeah. does all the that does all the in-house work that they used to do internally, right? Yeah, I, think Although, I don't think Studio Ponic has any relation to Miyazaki at all. I mean, well, he's officially retired, so no, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's just it's just founded by former lead producer from Studio Ghibli yeah. and works closely with Studio Ghibli, <laughs> so. But yeah, I was just gonna say like Miyazaki and Takahata are just like responsible for like everything which people rate from uh, Ghibli, and like I think I've talked previously before how Miyazaki would offer people a chance to do something, and then would either completely take control himself or would just refuse to offer any support, and like. In terms of a dysfunctional studio, I think like probably a lot of the animation studio, while being deeply respectful of um, Miyazaki's talent, probably takes one look at the the way uh, Ghibli operates and goes, um, "No, thank you." Because yeah. like, have you watched um, the the documentary um, for the making? They did a, two dual documentaries. They made one for. The wind rises up, and um, Princess Kaguya by Takahata. Yeah, sorry, uh, but um, yes, no. I've watched Kingdom of Dreams and Madness. It's very good. It's it's very gifable, also yeah. <laughs> too. But uh, no, it's like I feel like it's almost unworkable how uncompromising both of these men are, and it's I it can only really be sustained by by their fame and the fame of the studio that they are irrevocably identified with. Um, 
And Toshio Suzuki, like the producer who's working with both of them, seems like he just has to be have a, have a sainted level of patience to deal with these men who isn't is wasn't the line for Princess Kaguya. Someone like yelled at Takahata. It's like he doesn't want to even finish this movie <laughs> uh, or something. <laughs> He's not even yeah. trying to finish this movie. He just, you know, just getting done. Yeah. And like them, them talking about like just how. Uh, well, we've never animated a film of this length in this way ever before, but yeah, let's do it. It's it's like just even just deciding we're going to do this style, you know, and not even knowing if it's actually practical, and then just yeah, I guess we, we we've got the money to do it. It's just like a license no one else is afforded, and just due to both logistical and financial constraints, like no one else can do can just do what Takahata does and just decide to impose this this style which no one knows will work even like someone like Uasus has like a set style to him which I think Miyazaki has also has a set style I think like you can visually you know you can look at a Miyazaki work and you can can tell it's his and similarly you can look at Uasa work and tell it it it's his, but I don't think the same is true of Takahata, for instance. I think visually, I agree, but I also think that that in terms of his storytelling style, I think yeah, Takahata yeah, is yeah, fairly. Yeah. Although Takahata did work longer and did seem more committed to like the contract director life with his like Anne of Green Gables work and that that sort of thing. Um, but no, I think that I think that when people say that they don't really have a don't really can't recognize a, a, a style with a director, it often means that they can't really recognize an art style mm-hmm. or a, or a visual animation tricks style. So I don't know. I'm always skeptical. I think that most of the time you can tell what directors like because they'll put it in where it doesn't always fit. Um, foreshadowing I, for, for Seeger Drifa after yeah. the break. I, I know <laughs> but, you, you, to you, Ben, uh, Gainax is something which is very, very dear to your heart. And, and Anno, like Anno himself is an incredible artist, but I'm, I'm, I don't know if Gainax is necessarily as identical by his art style as, as more by his motifs and his themes, which he likes mm-hmm. to cover. I mean, he has, he has a fairly, when given his own druthers, he has a fairly like angular, like early to mid nineties style, which I think is just when he reached his artistic maturity. And so that's kind of the thing that sticks around. Um, and it, partly because that's because he's worked, he's always worked so closely with the uh, Yoshiyuki Satomoto. Mm. Um, but no, I mean, like, I, what was the thing we were watching where I was like, hey, there's a there's a bunch of traffic lights that are all all red. The last <laughs> one's green. I was it was a the Saikano movie. And I was like, oh, hey, it's a that's like one of Anno's favorite visual motifs is is a line of traffic lights or a web of power lines mm. um, or or dusk settling over the city. And Don't forget oftentimes hands. like jingles playing from various electronic sources um ringing out or even just the gynax kick which is a thing <laughs> gynax kick and gynax bounce um for different parts of anatomy are just trademarks that people expect as much as they probably if Atano's still working they probably expect a circus from him <laughs> so <laughs> i mean gynax I bounce know. is a lot worse than gynax kick <laughs> <laughs> the gynax bounce is pretty is pretty yeah. Uh, and, yeah and if they can combine them both into one on sequence they will well, when a woman straightens up, 
um, her boobs have to fling themselves into the air and then come back down and settle. So it's just, Otherwise, just physics. What are they on, paying people? the studio for? <laughs> like you got to have them realistic boob jiggle. Uh. Oh, hey, Itano, Itano uh, designed the kaiju for uh, SSSS Gridman. So that's cool. Sorry, that's, that's all I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is at least one circus in that show, too. So what you said bears out. <laughs> there's plenty. Of, I mean, in every mech, in fucking Sigurd Rifa, there's there is Itano Circus coming from Ozzy's plane. So <laughs> just how we work. Is there any other studios anyone wants to particularly bring up? Real quick, I wanted to talk about what I, what I said before about the difficulty of finding replacements, because I think that ha- that has happened a lot with Production IG lately, where like Production IG is this storied, like how people, how Andy talks about Madhouse. I think people frequently talked about Production IG through the 2000s yeah. and early 2010s. It's mm. just like, if they made it, it would look beautiful. It would be good. Shut up. Um, that sort of thing. And I think that um, with... Uh, with IG, you've seen that a very fairly corporate uh, studio, they have like 130 employees, uh, which is a lot, although not a lot is like, say, Sunrise, which apparently has over 230. Um, but wow. that they are they're concerned to. But Sunrise has like eight studios under its aegis. So, mm. well, I think that uh, that uh, IG is still relatively integrated. But um there is this concern that like all of their all of their greats are getting old and retiring, and so there is a concern to bring to bring in properties on which new people can make make themselves known and famous, um, and that has unfortunately resulted in like Ghost in the Shell Arise, which is a mediocre reboot that I feel misses the charm of the original and fully coolly progressive and alternative, mm. which are mediocre sequels that miss the charm of the original um and at the same time that i roll my eyes like expansively at that i'm also appreciate that they are trying to like studios have to nourish talent to continue to exist they can't exist as these abstract entities that are just a brand i mean they can and they probably will uh if they can't but it but uh if they can't get people to replace the people working on stuff but there is this sense um that we do that they do need to that studios are communities um that need to foster talent that can become the leadership and carry the brand forward the brand doesn't just have momentum on its own past a certain point that's how we get post trigger gynax um which is just a bunch of no names working on less prestigious properties uh, and so it's interesting to see to see specifically uh, IG, but other studios are doing this too, of having like younger zero experience directors take on relatively well anticipated properties to try to kind of establish themselves as guardians or caretakers of the studio's current style or to help them establish a new style. And while stuff like Psychopaths 3 and the Fooly Cooly sequels and stuff don't really get the job done sometimes i feel like mm-hmm. it is interesting to watch studios trying to do that pivot and trying to acknowledge that like the the wages we get from this generation of of creators who were born in the 60s and came of age in the 80s and are kind of just like have fueled the incredible growth of anime um that we need to have a new crop of that and mm-hmm. it's not happening on its own possibly because of the dominance of people like Hidekiano mm. or virtually anyone else who started making started doing work yeah. in the mid to late 80s. 
Um, because if you look at a beloved anime property, chances are the guy who directed was born from 1960 to 1968 yeah. um, and is now an old man. So I wonder if Anno's really aware of that himself, because Kara's been uh, funding the uh, uh, Nippon Animation Expo over the past, like, I think, six years, which is basically a, a yearly short collection of shorts. I think it's about 12, 12 to 24, depending on the the season, of just these five-minute-long shorts where young directors are given a chance to just do something and show that they've got either a concept or just the artistic chops to uh, do something which is will catch the eye. And, like, Anno being aware of this, this pressure of becoming synonymous with a studio and thinking, OK, well, I've got, got to at least give people a chance to get out from my shadow and express themselves in some way from, from my studio for right. people to, to be happy. Like, if, if you imagine being, like, a, an up-and-coming director working in for a company where there's just this one name and they're, they're just associated it with the studio to such a degree, like... And, like, you can do, as, as you were saying with Shaft, where they can be, OK, essentially understudies but the other person's name's still above it like i guess what happened with spielberg a lot in in the west where you'd get a steven spielberg production you get a a, a, a shinbo production in the same mm-hmm. way these days and you can have i guess the other way is, is what Kara does which is give them this opportunity to, sh- to show what they've got and do these these shorts which are funded by the company where they can just be take it whatever i do and just do something called death billiards and then you get death parade a couple of years later and mm-hmm. things like the dragon dentist which is a, which was uh started off as just like a tiny short and then became a, a full-length uh ova no which academia also yeah. yeah 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 i mean there is definitely that i think that ano is at least aware of that insofar as he as he seems to be someone who is desperate to retire at some point <laughs> uh, and so maybe it maybe as opposed to the miyazaki types who are lying to some themselves that they can work forever Anna's just like please take take this cup from me yeah i no longer want to drink from it but like yeah i mean he uses um he uses connections like Megumi Hayashibara and Koichi Yamadura um which are two extremely famous voice actors do all the voices um, for those for those animations. So it's also like using his clout in the industry to associate uh, new young animators and their and their production with with famous names, and they appear in this nice venue. Um, although it's apparently gone on hiatus, uh, circa twenty eighteen. But for yeah, I think that's for possibly, three years there. It was pretty great. <laughs> I think that could be possibly a. Uh, someone wanting really to say goodbye to all of Evangelion and, and not having any e- e- emotional energy to focus on What are we going to do when this movie else? comes out and we can't make that joke anymore? <laughs> well, you'll still be able to keep making it because I'll just announce another four movies. So you're fine. Your belief that Anno will keep making Evangelion after he's put him to bed <laughs> with this thing is is wild because Anno, like ran away so far from Evangelion that he went to like live action productions for a while. <laughs> the cutie honey movie with cutie nation. I'll put money on it that he's going to do another series after this. Another Evangelion series. Another Evangelion series. I'll put money on it right now. 
Uh, I want to take that bet just to humiliate you, but also I'm not a, really a betting man. So. Mm-hmm. I mean, no, no, I buy it, but I, he's well, not. We have it on tape away. now, so at least mm-hmm. at least the world will know how wrong you are in yeah. like 2023 when Ano retires permanently from everything. Yeah, just like when Miyazaki <laughs> Become, becomes from... a becomes when? a lifelong Ultraman cosplayer just for the rest of his <laughs> yeah. rest of his life. Yeah, sure. I mean, he's only going to retire when he's dead. Let's face it. Like that's the only time you can win. It's going to be a tour team for a guy that we don't fucking no, know. He's go- no, he's going to be making he's going to be making Tokusatsu shit forever. Now he's going to make Shin Godzilla too. Shin Shin Godzilla. So yeah. he'll be well, on Pucci Ava before you fucking realize. Yeah. Well, we're getting <laughs> an, another series of SS Gridman, and that started off as a, a short in in the expo. So no, did it really? Oh yeah, yeah I see it now. The Ultraman. Okay, are we done then? I think we are. <laughs> Speaking of taking this cup from me. The other studio that we all love is Science Zero, but we've chatted about that shit. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. Same weird, flat, like, cheap, feels cheap, but very beautifully drawn, very beautifully, like, animated, usually. As I guess the style, he also has a really specific style of drawing his characters. Yeah, he's, he's incredibly it. expressive. And then, I mean, actually, if you look at Azelken, like, it's amazing. Like, my problem with Shaft is that they take an original show that has its own style already and then they're like nah you don't need that you need a shaft style whilst when you look at azoken you can see like you can see the mangaka's style and uh yuasa's style sort of blended in in a way that's just not so offensive but still clearly both the mangaka and science Zero's style if anything it looks like Science Zero even chose it because it looks so similar to his style would you say uh, that's true of something like um, uh, Gonagi's style and what happened with uh, Devilman, though, for instance? Well, I think Devilman's a, a bit different because Devilman, like, the original Devilman looks exactly the same. And then I, it, it's a case of it, it's the, uh, the way that Devilman has changed from, I guess, a pure, like, manga, old manga to now something that's sort of beloved and adored and sort of held on as like a you know it's similar to the way that someone would redo a star wars film again and then call it episode nine like that's how i view it cutting cultural criticism (laughs) (laughs) i i don't know like that that's how i that's how i view it i mean i know what you're saying they they do they do not copy gona guy style at all but they also aren't necessarily doing exactly the same story that no gona guy was doing apart from the ending I, th- I think it's it is like even ping pong, which I love, doesn't really resemble all the the the, and the manga which it's it's from. But I think people do seem to trust him to do adaptations because although we will talk about how um, original and and strange some of his stuff is, you still have things like Japan Sinks being actually a huge huge property in japan and things like ping pong and uh devilman being adaptations like people trust him to to adapt their works in a way that i'm not sure they would other directors who are as expressive as him yeah do do shaft get many under the bridge is yeah they have a lot of adaptations (laughs) but I, i don't know like there's a light novel adaptation and then there's is a a massive blockbuster film adaptation. I feel like there's a difference in scale. Like there's a lot of light novels and there's some, which obviously have a far bigger imprint than others. Like, but I think this is, this is the thing. This is why like a lot of studios love doing light novels nowadays is because they can really imprint their own 
studio style on it because there's no drawn style. Like this is why mm. Shaft got the Shaft stuff from Monogatari because there was no, there were a few visual elements on the front of the book which has kept over in Katanagatari, which was you know a better show. But um, <laughs> I'm fucking with you. Fucking with you. No, I, um, I do think that this is that this is not going. That your theory doesn't hold, Duncan, because Zetsubo Sensei manga, Maria Hollick manga, Natsuno Arashi manga, Hidamari sketch manga, eh, and yet the town, fine, and yet the town fine, moves fine. manga, Madoka. <laughs> is Madoka a manga? Or? It was a, it was an anime before it was a manga, but it on, became on, a manga on, after on, it was. <laughs> so <laughs> on, on Ben's moment of triumph, where where he he now appears crowing above of me, Nisekoi manga. Shall we he end this? March comes in like a lion. Manga. But to be fair, those those two those last two you mentioned, they do. I mean, more March comes in like a lion than uh, Nisekoi does, but they definitely keep the art style of the mangaka like fairly faithful and consistent. Yeah, and, and same with Sarno Zetsubo Sensei, where like yeah. um, Koji Kumita's art style is is very distinctive, and they a lot more of the character frame is done the shaft style but like his like love of like very obvious screen prints on stuff and like the sort of weird luminance of the characters is very something that they carry over mm-hmm. now are we done <laughs> now we're done <laughs> awesome well let's go ahead and take a break we'll come back and we will talk about Senyoku no Sigurdrifa the latest Love Live and Jeff's thoughts about Love Lab alright the loveliest lab back for starters duncan you are caught up with seeker drifa mm-hmm. correct yep just and you <laughs> just in just time. barely and do you love it hate it or option number c um i'd describe episode nine of seeker drifa as um anime directed by michael bay and let, let, let's leave it at that uh should we we have a podcast that we talk about stuff <laughs> on so. so when when i mean i mean as a person who hasn't watched sigridrifa i imagine that is a uh, an episode where the camera is constantly moving doesn't focus on people for very long and it's just revolving around people constantly like it's an add kid one behind the lens just sort of, i think he means ooh, more ooh. in terms of the plotting if i can imagine yeah, or it's the, just, the just, way that the stakes are escalating it's, it's just like, we should probably explain quick if you didn't if you didn't listen before sigridrifa aliens have invaded Odin, the Norse god, appears and empowers girls to drive antique planes to kill the aliens. Um, and now there's some intrigue shit going on. That's yeah. it. That's all. <laughs> but episode nine was like, oh, someone's traumatized and they're in bed and they, they walk up to the, 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 the vehicle they were injured in. Oh, and they collapse and it's, it's oh, they're traumatized. And then, then they're staring off into the distance and... Oh, oh, and then, and then <laughs> it was just so cliched. It was like this, like Sigrifa until this point had had some really nice directorial touches, and this was just such a cheaply 
it was just like shots were just like okay what what's the shot we 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 used to to show grief i guess it's this one yeah why not mm. yeah we should add that it also got abruptly delayed with a recap episode shoved between it um after episode eight because obviously and you can see in the animation afterwards obviously they are experiencing difficulties because of scheduling and probably because of covid mm. um but yeah, I think for that, Sonica is the girl um, who is flying the Italian seaplane uh, that actually had to be retrofitted with guns because it was not historically a plane with guns. And for me, that's been an interesting experience of her character arc because she's introduced as the big titty girl. Um, and then later on, it's revealed that she is by far the youngest on the team. She's 14, correct? And so there is a bit of Evangelion style, like child soldier trauma being inserted there. Um, but it kind of comes out of no, it like when it's when we meet her mentor, um, who's flying the, I don't know their names. I just know the planes. they fly. <laughs> I think her name's like Am Amakusa, Amakusa or something. Yeah. Amatsuka um, is flying the F7F uh, tiger cat. Um, and she dies horribly after promising that she'll come back and, uh, Sonica has a horrible breakdown where she can't stand to look at the plane. Um, she doesn't see what's the point in learning to fly these planes if the fate of everyone who flies one is to die horribly um, in a futile battle against aliens. Um, and then in the course of this revelation, it's like, oh, also she's really young and like she joined the like military in scare quotes when she was 10 and now she's 14 um, and also has big titty. So that's like a weird, a weird super anime dynamic. And I think with a lot of a lot like with a lot of the lower points of Sigurdrifa, I kind of dissociate and appreciate what they're going for more than how it actually happens, um, where I'm just like, this is a really good idea of like the gung ho kid who is excited to join the military. And now her mentor's dead and her sense of self has collapsed. And she has a uh, Mio tell her like, no, I think you'll be fine because you and your mentor fly exactly the same way and you both love flying. And she's like, no, I hate flying because it kills people. So it's kind of, it was two episodes worth of character development crammed into half an episode because they're also in the realm of the gods, like discovering in weirdly in this world, Norse mythology has like been erased from human consciousness. Mm. And so they have to rediscover Norse mythology to realize that spoilers Odin has told them that they're going to prevent Ragnarok, but it turns out that Ragnarok has already happened. And in fact, uh, Odin is delusional and trying to cause a very specific sequence of events to happen to like gut the prophecy of Ragnarok and make it not. It's not entirely clear what exactly the play out is there, but basically Ragnarok has already happened. Odin is in denial and using hum humanity as a pawn to like have a new, better Ragnarok with blowjob and blowjobs and sex workers and and blackjack, so um, so that so that is all them discovering that is happening side by side with this young girl, um, as Duncan said, rather melodramatically, like struggling with her newfound fear of flying, which over the past four years hasn't really gotten gotten bad, but now this one person dies and she is now a, a collapsed house of cards. So that part is corny. I agree. Um, I can see what they're trying for and I like it on paper, but it's I'm just continually pursued by the impression that this is a two core anime's worth of ideas that is being crammed into one core, which is why we have 
that episode. And then the very next episode's like, oh, it's the summer festival episode <laughs> where they all get in Yucatas <laughs> and, this... and do oh, goldfish scooping. Uh, ben, is this a uh, original anime or is this a yes, written by wow. I believe okay. written by the written by the ReZero guy, correct? Yeah. Mm. Yes. Yes, the ReZero guy um, oh. had basically did series comp. Um, so he wrote the, the he wrote came up with the ideas and wrote the script for this, um, and that's the as, other thing that I, I think in, also hurts in the pacing. In addition to the light novel act writer, or as in the director for the anime, as in the light novel writer has written an anime script, and in addition to having pacing issues, I think from being crammed into too little running time, it is also written a little bit like a novel and there are not always like episode ebb and flows here. Oftentimes episodes are just feeding one into the other into the other. And I think that they, again, if they had more running time, they would have been able to have like these, like within the episode rising and falling actions rather than just like wall to wall stuff crammed into it. And then, which makes, which makes the lighter episodes, which are at least for Duncan and somewhat for me, like the more enjoyable parts of the show makes them feel like weirdly unearned. Cause like they're, there's stuff going on. Come on, we got we got to hurry. We got to. <laughs> yeah. I think like, <laughs> like it's, it's... aliens are going to destroy humanity, and you're having a summer festival to cheer everyone up. Yeah. So oh, at least they acknowledge that 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 someone criticizes her for having having the summer festival. Yeah. Azu, it? best girl, says, "Why the fuck are we doing this?" And then eventually gets one over because Mio is a juggernaut and can never be convinced not to be Genki. So <laughs> I think like, never not Genki. Yeah. Like. I have a lot of problems with its action not quite like I think early on when it was they kept stakes relatively small where they're fighting just like a couple of of monsters of the week it's not too bad it's it's fairly clear and readable but by yeah pu- by, puzzle enemies basically yeah by the time we're getting to these these last few episodes where they're fighting like these huge swarms and these monolithic built constructs which are like the size of like cities like it's just the screen's just full of noise and there's not really anything happening other than people monologuing in their cockpit saying oh do this do that and then uh, the the animation of the planes just isn't that all that it's it's... well the the budget's also cratered like i think that the screen full of visual noise and people monologuing as opposed to show through action is is them like cutting serious corners yeah. on this production. I, like, I, I, I hope... Like, the best case scenario for me is is that they're saving the money for the finale so they can mm. wrap it up relatively well. But that's the best case. And even for, even in that best case, I, as you've said, I like the downtime. I like... I think the, the director's shown far more flair when he's been doing... Uh, expressions and sm- small movements when he had the budget to do that in around uh, in the sort of slice of life elements the show had early on. I think he's sh- shown far more attitude there than he has in the action direction. Mm-hmm. And like it's, for, for instance, like Konosuba, like that show's not made by their adventures so much as the dialogue between them. Uh, in the downtime of of those adventures, and I think like you can t- that that the this person's not necessarily great at writing plot, but he he can write um, good character interactions. And the fact that 
basically they've gone okay to have more plot to make sure we give the the plot it's it's due in these final two episodes we're going to sacrifice this these downtime episodes and not for any animation budget at them like i mean but... if anything i it sounds like there's too much plot i, I feel that like you're not talking about konosuba you're talking about v-zero and v-zero's great greatest thing is that it, the plot which is all character driven is really fucking good. So it sounds like, if anything, he's written too much plot. I, I don't know if I'd say V-Zero's... Pl- Sorry. Like, yeah. I, 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 yeah, I was wrong. It, I meant to say, yeah, V-Zero. Like, because the thing in... Like, V-Zero, it's... It, it's, it, it does bear, bear true. Like, the plot in V-Zero is not what... Like, who actually gives a shit of what <laughs> the Witch of the Envy actually is? It's... It, what you're concerned with is how these characters are feeling about what he's being put through again and again. And the fact that he repeats these events time and time again, the plot is moving forward at a glacial rate. Like literally he he goes over, he gets to talk to different characters five or six times. And that's not about advancing the plot. That's about deepening the character relationships. But, but the way that they advance the plot in that show is, I mean, we're now moving on to V-Zero chat, so let's, like, <laughs> let's quickly close this down. But like, certainly from season one, the way that they, they brought up around secondary characters who had their own agendas and then there were chats so that you could understand their agendas so that then when he resets and dies and then he goes on, he either remembers or doesn't remember their agenda, you're not quite sure. But like, the thing that I was getting at was that like, the characters all have their own agendas and they all want to do some stuff. There's a lot of plot in V-Zero. I, like... And it's just, and I know what you're saying. Like, no one, you won't really care about the White Witch. But then, also as an audience, you're not meant to care about the White Witch until halfway in. Like, they don't give a fuck about any of that, like, overarching lore until literally halfway through the anime. Yeah, my my response would be um, that at least, I mean, I haven't seen ReZero, but I think that there is a distinction between just raw plot and character-driven developments. Um, where like learning about the characters and their motivations and their and like why they will do stuff um, can provide forward momentum even when nothing is actually happening. And I think that the main issue with Secret Reef's writing, besides the fact that it's just butter scraped over too much bread in terms of how much how much room they have to tell the story that they're telling, is just that the first few episodes are about Claudia's survivor guilt and PTSD. And then that kind of gets resolved as she as she has meets this family at Tatayama Air Force Base, um, and then that gets nuked and is gone, <laughs> um, and and so now we kind of have there's what we're learning about the characters and how the characters are growing is not really relevant to what is happening in terms of the events of the world and the fact that Sonika comes Sonika overcomes her her like breakdown about why she flies and saves Mio um, is nice on its micro level. But I think at least with Duncan immediately sniffed out how fake it felt and how it was just like, she can't help because right now she can't help. And then she has to help later. So she just has, she has, she tries to get in the plane, she fails. And then later she uh, reads a message from her, from her dead mentor that says, don't be a baby uh, or stop being a baby. And she laughs and she's like, okay, I'm fixed now. And so like, there's not enough room for the character development. The character development is only incidentally connected to to the to the events of the plot, and the best and most impactful moments of character growth are literally 
the ones where we take a vacation from what's happening. We don't learn about these characters as they're, sh- as they're shooting on aliens. We learn about them as they eat at the dining hall, or even regrettably as they have an extremely fan servicey moment inside the communal baths, or what have you. Because um, like I like all the characters. I think all the characters are interesting. Even the fucking throwaway jet pilot guys, who despite their whole thing being that they're disposable and like not supposed to be able to get anything done. And in fact, that's why they all have the character personality trait of they're madly in love with the main characters. All of them are just obsessively in love with all of the girls and think they're so amazing and so admirable and will do anything. will die for them. None of them have died. Even, I mean, ever since the, the pretty boy died in the, uh, the goofy swim swimsuit beach episode, um, died. He came back. That was the joke. Um, like, we... Well, one blew himself up this week. So. Yeah. <laughs> yes, one blew himself up this week. Um, and literally you said it like the other guy's like, I was about to do that too. And it's just like, well, he's the <laughs> one who's who's had his like gut cut open. So like, I think he's ahead of you in line, my man, in terms of being excited to die, being crazy to die, that sort of Bushido, as I think the, the, phrase, the phrasing is. Um, but yeah, like... The best parts of the show, the, where we learn the most about the characters at the base and the way that the plot is constructed means that we just have, it feels like all the character development is being crammed in the cracks and then they have to get scrambled to go shoot down a bunch of extremely generic CG aliens and then they come back to the base and we have some like hurried plot and character development. It's a very weird dynamic that's hard to kind of, it's hard for me to completely grab onto as I am still overall. I don't hate this show. I like individual parts of it, and apparently I'm ignoring the parts I don't like mm. just subconsciously. Um, I think the planes are cool. I like all the characters. Um, I don't. The main four are all interesting in their own right. It's kind of weird that Sonika is 14 and has mm. physical developments like she's in her early 20s, but that's also anime, mm. unfortunately. So, <laughs> uh, so yeah, I don't know. We're gonna find out in two episodes if they if if as Duncan said they are trying to save money for a final battle episode, or if this is just a, a series that's flaming out because of production issues, probably pandemic related production issues. Although maybe even in a good year, um, they wouldn't have been able to tell the story in twelve episodes. But yeah. that's what it is. It is. It. Is, I mean. Yeah, I don't know. It's very weird that everyone forgot what Norse mythology is. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a very odd, like, papering over an obvious plot hole. I thought that they were going to just be like, well, it's Japan and no one knows what knows what, knows what Norse mythology is here. But no, they're just like, no, Norse mythology has been forgotten throughout the world except for a few folk songs in Northern Europe. Everything else is completely forgotten. They don't know who Thor is. They don't know who what Ragnarok is. Oh. They don't know. They don't know what Odin is. It's very odd, but I guess that's because Ragnarok destroyed the gods. And so in this world, Ragnarok happened and therefore it deleted the knowledge of Norse gods from all of humanity's brain, Mm -hmm. which is which I guess is a very ReZero thing to do. I don't know. (laughs) Like, I I assumed they were going to just do like, oh, this is this is a a new world he has created just to take a second shot at this or something dumb like that. That wouldn't be bad either. I don't know. Like, the ideas are good. I just it's sad that anime doesn't really get remade unless it's super famous, because I think I think a 22 episode take on this with more money and more time would automatically be better no matter how it came out. Yeah. Duncan seems I, less sure. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I imagine it would just turn into a series of like four films. 
Maybe, but that would also hurt the slice of life aspect. That's the best part of the show. So, mm. but um, Girls and Panzer manages to keep that in its film, so I think it's it's <laughs> possible. But... but that's a super successful show, though. That's mm. the thing. Like, you only get that chance if yeah. you're like wildly successful. This is last episode's conversation, basically. <laughs> yeah, I think in the end, as I feel like they've wasted wasted too much time time teasing the development of, of yeah. uh, Odin's double cross rather than bring it in fairly early, maybe after in the like fourth or fifth episode, and and letting that because like you've just been you've been betrayed by a god who has also empowered you into be a, like a superheroine. Like mm-hmm. you should have some thoughts on that. Like, well, they they do kind of. They're like, well, how do we fight? Because like, he's made it clear that like the aliens were my plan. You are my plan. This fight is all my plan. And so it's like, well, what do you do? Not fight the aliens? Like, it's very. They could be highlighting it more. I think I I, I agree very much that this is like, like it's kind of the Adrian Veidt from from Mad from a Watchmen sort of thing. Almost said Mad Men. Jesus, Adrian Veidt from Watchmen, where it's just like. I already won. Like y'all can do whatever you want, but I already got my shit done. Mm. Um, and I guess it's just the question is, is Odin delusional or is, or has he really like tricked them into destroying humanity in this very specific way um, by f- sending them an unbeatable alien foe? I guess it's kind of cheating. Like, of course mm. it's going to destroy humanity, but yeah. I, I, my prediction is that humanity were just a different people, race of humans who survived the Ragnarok to begin with. Yeah, I don't. I don't have any confidence that the metafiction of the of the plot is going to make any sense. Like, <laughs> they've already they failed to communicate that Norse mythology doesn't exist in this world. And that would be a very easy one off in the first two or three episodes, and they didn't do that until like mid- the middle of the show. Um, what do they want? Like a crib notes? Like by the way, Norse mythology doesn't exist in this world. In case you're wondering, I mean, just just like <laughs> here, here we go. Here here is a writer's idea. Odin, that's a weird name. What does that even mean? Done. Rag- Ragnarok. That sounds Ragnarok. like Norse, but the Norse don't have gods. Yeah, it's it's done. I think like the the obvious reach reach for this show is is Eva, because like Eva has these deep deep like visual Judeo Christian things and uh, a Hebrew Hebrew yeah Gnostic even yeah and. It doesn't try and explain those. It just leaves them there and builds its plot around the threat rather than going, oh, the big reveal is this is Norse mythology. or <laughs> it, like, Which the, you the, figured out from literally the first second of the anime. Yeah, whereas, <laughs> whereas in, in Eva, the, the big reveal is he's been betrayed by his fra- father. And mm-hmm. how does he deal with that? And like that's that's an emotional and character conflict. Whereas this is just um, you've been you've been set up by a god, and you're you what you're doing, what you have to do is fight, which is what you've been doing since the start. There's no yeah. no change in the stage. There's no turn. And, There's no third act turn. You're absolutely yeah. right. That's a good that's a good criticism. I mean, this is this is the director of this is a guy who his previous work besides key animation was he was the action director on on Grand Crest. And he was the action director on Elicization. And then you got this. And that's and that's it. And so it's weird that he's been the action director, and yet the best parts of the show are like the the slice of life stuff. But I do think it is it is fairly predictable as an outcome if you take a light novelist working with a guy who's only direct, done action direction mm-hmm. and they are doing a very like mixed genre Eva-ish thing. 
I wonder if he takes like a real step back on those because you said they're like really segmented, right? Like the live action, the action stuff's all in one episode, and then it's sort of like a chill out episode the next. Well, it's just more that the characters who are involved in each kind of do their own thing. I'd have to look at the staff, but I mean, they have a a large number of they have they have four people with the title of chief chief action direction. So, wow. Well, I was just going to say, like, I wonder if it's a case where he just doesn't care when it's not action involved. So there's other people who sort of take the mantle or have more try to like put something in on like a more of a director stance. Well, it almost sounds like a, a situation that H. Bomber guy talked about in regards to Ruby, where you had the guys in charge of writing who were awful and the guy in charge of action who was excellent, and they just kind of ignored each other and mm. did their best to make their work connect up at the at the seams, but didn't do much work beyond that. Yeah, this is more just that you need more air between the slice of life stuff. It literally is like them presenting to the fucking World Council about Odin's betrayal while they're preparing for for a summer like a traditional style summer festival. And it's just like they don't they don't they don't complement each other. And that happens a lot in Secret Drifa over you have two individually good or even just fine things and they're just they're juxtaposed and the juxtaposition is supposed to be something you're supposed to ignore it's just they don't have enough time to have each have its own episode we always have to have um sonica having her breakdown while like there's they're fighting through um the god's world where they're finding out about odin's past and shooting down this massive pillar that's suddenly assembled itself which is not supposed to be how they work um and these three things besides the fact that they are all like dramatically immediate don't really have synergy with each other they're just exciting things happening all at the same time it's the ending multiplication effect that red letter media talks about with the star wars prequels of just like if one exciting thing is happening and that's exciting four exciting things happening at once in different parts of the show are even more exciting and the answer is no the answer is that you just like you you tune it out it's eating it's stuffing your mouth full of nerds and then you can't taste anything Nerds the candy, not the people. <laughs> well, speaking about stuffing your mouth full. Full of of nerds and, and highly coloured stuff. I've been watching Love Live Nijisaki High School Idol Club or Labu Raibu Nijisaku Gaku and Sukuru Idolu Dokokai. Um, that is the new series of Love Live that everybody knows and loves, which... If you are unaware, there is a big old competition called The Love Live where school idols who are idols in a school um, go and compete. And then if they are the best, they win being the best. Usually their school is closing down and they have to save it by going, hey, hey, guys, guys, if if we win The Love Live, then our school is going to be really big and popular. Uh, And that's what happened in the last two series. Um, to various effects, as you, I'm sure you're aware. I don't need to tell you about how the love first love live. It happened fine. Love live sunshine. It didn't go so well, but it's okay because they left, you know, with the last shining example of how great their school could have been. And in this one, they're in a diver, which is the big old place where you know it's just in the center of Tokyo, and it's really where uh, Big Sight is. It's really popular. It's a massive area. 
Everything, therefore, just like all the other love lives, is all a diver related, which is very funny because they go to shopping and then you're just like, I know where this is. This is in a diver. And then you're like, yeah, of course it's in a diver. That's where the whole fucking thing is. They have a, they have a goddamn like summer retreat. And do they go anywhere? No, they do not. They go to a diver. They actually just stay at fucking school. Um, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the interesting thing about this love life over the other love lives is... The previous love lives have always been about the unit as a whole. So every episode always invariably involves um, a number of or a single unit member of the love life uh, parade and their sort of emotional hangups and their feelings about being an idol, etc., etc. And then they actually turn out that actually this is what they want to do all along and they love it and it's great. And then they all sing along in a big happy show and everything's wonderful. Uh, and it is. Uh, but this one... It's not so much about the group, but about the individual, so, which I think is quite an interesting departure from the original Love Live uh, sort of makeup and formula in that it can still follow that formula where it has one person per episode and their sort of social hang-ups, their own emotional get-ups, and then they sort of managing to overcome it within an episode and then also sing a song about how they've overcome it within an episode. It's very formulaic, very done like two seasons before but the fact that it's on the individual is a lot more interesting because it means that you have like character growth and then also they're they're sort of not competing for a school they're competing for themselves Mm. so i think personally that's quite interesting there's a weird like sub bit where they obviously go into doing a single solo song like that that person's episode they have a solo song where they talk about i don't know how they love being swiss or there's one person who <laughs> just the disdain dripping from you and you when you say that got to me i'm sorry i messed up keep it's going okay. it's true she's she's just like oh, i'm really happy i've come to the school because i'm from switzerland and i'm just like you look like fucking heidi no fucking shit like go fuck off heidi and there's you know they, there's one who can't show emotions but then turns out if she puts a fucking board over her face called Rena board she all of a sudden can show emotions and i'm like okay i'm annoyed because she was kind of going Wait, so, in. so 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 do you just is it like a board with a face drawn on it or something or mm. yeah and... yeah yeah she's she got like a flip does she perform like that <laughs> well ha huh, you're, you're you're jumping the gun a little bit there Ben. okay sorry she, sorry andy sorry she, andy. i don't want to take this performs, away from you she unveils the Rena mask or whatever the fuck they call it which is like a which is like a um uh, a Daft Punk-esque mask that fits okay. over her face that shows the emotion that she's trying to convey at the time. How it works, man, I don't know. Um, but it doesn't need to doesn't need to worry about that because otherwise when she's not got the mask on, she's emotionless. And that's a real main worry is that she can't show emotion even though she wants to. So when she hasn't got the, the digital mask on, which feels like a better solution, she has um, a flip book of presumably pre-written facial expressions that she then puts up to her face and then goes, I'm really happy, Rena Board. And you're like, I'm really pissed off with this, Rena Board. Fuck off. Like, it's, <laughs> which is annoying because I was really uh, hoping that she would be the best character. She's not. The best character is Ai-chan. And uh, come at me. She's the best. She's got, she's a, <laughs> you know, a Genki Gyaru who loves her grandma and her favourite thing is her grandma's cooking. She's, she's the best. Absolute, 
absolute best. Um, uh, so, Andy, like, just before you, your best girl uh, love <laughs> girl just love. overwhelms you too much. Yeah, just yeah. A, 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 I've, I've got to like, slow it back a little bit. But nor, yeah, as you say, like, normally these idol shows are about working together as a team. And, like, mm. the from just the limited um, exposure I have ha- had to... to what goes on in industry like one of the gravest sins you can and do as an idol is break away from the the group and go solo and like that's that's really looked down upon and so how does a uh an idol show deal with being more individual focused when like there's obviously this with it with it around this industry this uh idea that you shouldn't be an ind- individual focus you should be part of the, the unit and like is there is there like any uh acknowledgement of that or is it just like nah we just have an episode on each character i mean i'm glad that you asked because it is you're correct in that it is very interesting for once that a show is trying to do something different with the idol formula um, the way that they sort of are, are betraying it is it's sort of like they're rivals. They're friendly rivals and they will help each other. And there is a lot of episodes where it's like, why are you helping me? We're not meant to be units. We're meant to be individuals. And they're like, yeah, but we're also friends and we're okay. also in the same unit idols, like uh, idol um, class. So we are trying to, whilst we are, you know, rivals in a sense, whilst we are not working together, I am here to support you emotionally and physically as a friend. Uh, And, you know, that is actually quite an interesting change of dynamic, at least so far in the 10 episodes that it's been, because it just means that you don't get big, big, like, production of everybody singing. You just get a single solo song, which is generally quite good. Mm. Um, The... Sorry. Because the like the, the the two shows which I, I've I've seen which address that is uh, one Perfect Blue, which uh, yeah. That's, <laughs> do, yeah. Not, that's not talking about how that ends. Yeah, on. and uh, the other is Review Starlight, which li- is literally people mm. um, fighting each other uh, uh, in order to get the f- the front spot of, on the stage, and like I think it's interesting to hear like you've got an I- idol series where wanting to be the best and not just wanting to play your part in a unit is is something which is being talked about because it's not individualism is not something we see often in uh anime especially especially around anything which has a girl like it's like a girl putting herself first yeah right because the the other thing is the idols the point of that high school uh, idol club is that it is a club of people who are all like liking and wanting to do the same thing um much like tank um <laughs> <laughs> in uh in girls and panzer like they are they are meant to be doing the same thing so you think that as a school a same school idol club they would also be interested in working together but they're very much not and that actually comes about because the first episode you find out that um setsuna uh, she was the solo idol, or at least the highlighted idol of the school. Uh, that then made that the whole idol, uh, the whole idol school club, school idol club, disbanded because she basically broke apart and tore the um, 
tore the club apart because some okay, people wanted to do different things. Some people didn't want to just sing. Some people wanted to do be cute. Some people didn't think that, you know, like there's always a thing now with like idol shows where it's like, what does it mean to be an idol? Like, what is so, your version yeah. of idol? And it's just like, well, it's not just cool and singing. I want to be cute and I want to be funny and I want to do this. So, so the in- instigating event of the series is is uh, the breakup of this previous um, idol group, then. Well, the Idol School Club, yeah, but yeah. then it got brought yeah, back at the same time, which is interesting because it was due to the person who broke it up. They mm-hmm. saw their performance and said, hey, let's start an Idol School Club. Anyway, uh, th- I mean, it will get to a point where I think they're going to come back, come together anyway, because yeah. they realize, but that's <laughs> only after individual growth as opposed to group growth. Um, the other weird thing that's interesting is that so there's one character in here who I don't like because she's got gross green hair and she's really boring called uh, Takasaki Yu. Uh, and she is not a school idol so far. She's just a supporter. And there's always one in every Love Live show where they're like, I can't be an idol. I don't want to do that. It's not what I'm un- interested in. And then her hidden and- gifts. <laughs> <laughs> Invariably, she gets one over. But it's like this weird thing where she's like, I wish I want to create like the last episode that ended was like, I want to create a festival where, where everyone can celebrate being school idols. And then I was like, hold the fucking phone. That's what love life is. And then I was like, hold the fucking phone, hold the fucking phone. What happens if this is a prequel to the previous two love life series where this motherfucker sets up the love life, love which, life origins. Exactly. Which would be like an incredible fucking like rug pull. I, I highly doubt that that's going to happen, but like the, the galaxy brain like meme is definitely going there for me. And if they pull it off, that would be fantastic. But uh, and it would also make sense because Adaibu is, you know, big big old place for uh, for. Then, then each each of the individuals will go off and found a school, and there'll be the, the like. <laughs> it's fucking Harry Potter. It's a Harry Potter opening. <laughs> yeah, one would be really clever. One would be really. Rena, Rena House. <laughs> no emotion house. Rena board house. Uh, so yeah, so. Like, whilst it's clearly got budget issues, probably due to... Uh, I think everybody's... I think everyone's having budget yeah, issues this year. Um, so. And maybe just because even more than that, it was just like, this Sunshine did not do very well um, hmm. as an anime, which is a shame. I quite like Sunshine, and maybe there just wasn't enough budget. But I think if the things that they're setting off in my head are going to play out the way that my head's going to fucking play them out, that would be incredible. I don't think it's going to do that. I think they're all just going to realise that actually they all like singing together and, hey, why don't we fucking be a group instead of playing and singing individually? But, you know, for these 10 episodes, I've really enjoyed what it's been doing more so than... I mean, just as much as all the previous Love Lives, because at the end of the day, it's cute girls doing cute things and they all have individual character complexes that you that get subsequently addressed in an episode. Uh, oh, and then the other weird thing, just, just whilst I'm on the subject of lives, so they do a solo song every episode, and then there's this thing where they're like, like the solo songs are beautiful and they explode, and it's just like a weird, like visual dreamscape in where they are. And then it cuts to them next episode, one of them watching the same visual, like dreamscape on, a, on YouTube, and then being like, this is getting really popular. And then I'm like, hold the fucking phone. This. 
This wasn't imagined. This was real life when the whole fucking floor turned to grass and then there was balloons everywhere. Like, what the fuck's going on? <laughs> it's so weird. It's like I, taking... It seems like they're pretty comfortable with a certain hyper-reality. At least in this Love Live <laughs> episode, we're like... They're all Norse We don't have to explain why something... Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's fine. It's fine. Like, it, I, I'm enjoying this as much as... The other two series, and if they pull off, you were the... down on it at the beginning. I would say you thought that it wasn't it wasn't holding together. Yeah, I I was I was down on it. The first episode wasn't that good. The second episode was like redeemed itself, but now it's sort of ten episodes in. It's getting into it's sort of setting its pace. Like it's I'm enjoying it a lot. I'm again, if you've watched Love Live, it's very formulaic to have a character, an episode, which has their own thing. But the way that they're then dealing with that differently, I think, is enough. Even though it's a small change, it's enough to make it fresh and it feel it kind of exciting, even though I know it's not going to be as exciting as I want it to be. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I don't know. I, yeah, get watched it, Duncan, because I know yeah. you want to watch it. <laughs> I'll have to watch Sunshine first and then... No, he's got to watch them all in order. Got to get invested in the, in the Love Live cinematic yeah. universe. <laughs> Gotta get get the law so that when there's the fourth series, Warlords of Love Live comes out. Uh, I'll, I'll, but, I mean, this is the other thing, right? Like, there's no mention of the previous two series in this show. Like, Andy's got first, his detective hat second, on. It's like, yeah, um, yeah. This is me with like my fucking like looking at the the board of strings. Yeah. <laughs> the string. Like the second series was just like, hey, it happened to this high school. Why can't it happen to our high school? This, there's not even any mention of the other two motherfuckers. Man, you're going to be so insufferable if you're right. <laughs> I can, I can, I can imagine Andy now. So like... weird to do a secret prequel. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, this is this is clearly where I I overthink uh, a very simple show. <laughs> to try and... it's, it's good, good, good for you to be like, like I, I feel like that's normally my job, but I'm glad you took it or on Jess, with a pond, or Jess Andy. <laughs> I mean, yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean, why aren't they talking about this? The answer is probably they forgot. But it's also <laughs> maybe it's not. Maybe it's not. I mean, I wait with the bated breath to find out. And it, honestly, right now, if there's any reason for me just to continue watching a very easy show, I'll fucking take it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm enjoying this, and occasionally the animation does improve. It's very notable, by the way, how like. I didn't say the first episode animation was Garbo. Second episode was a lot better. Like I had a lot more sort of editorial stuff that you'd expect from a Love Live show. Like the weird cut in faces where they put their hands to their face and it's like massive eyes. But it seems to just be related to a character as opposed to like the whole series. So maybe it was a character driven thing rather than anything else. But yeah, like mm. animation seems to drop or go up. Um, and I guess, like you said, it's COVID reasons. But I'm... Um, I'm surprisingly enjoying Love Life. That's well, uh, good. I'm glad to hear it. I don't want anyone to be slogging through a bad anime. Um, anyone else, bad. anyways. <laughs> well, I'm a bad person and deserve punishment, so that's why. <laughs> well, speaking of punishment, Jeff, you're watching Love Lab, right? I am. So I started watching Love Lab because I think some of y'all at some point were doing a bit where you said that Love Lab was an idol anime because it sounds like Love Live. <laughs> 
I think you. I think someone mistook it for me saying Love Live, and then I. And then, no, <laughs> it's been a long. It. Back when we did games, I really wanted to make a game where I name a character and their like motivation, and then you had to guess whether it was a character from Love Live, Love Lab, or Data Live. And I never did it because I'm lazy. Give me two weeks. <laughs> I'll fucking do it for you, babe. But then we can do a one where it's where it's is it a character from Bakaraman, Bakaman, or Bakuan, and then. <laughs> I can keep going with this, but I won't. Jeff, Love Lab. Yeah, and so I just started watching it because I, I had known that Andy was a big fan. Uh, probably also life. why I thought it might have been uh, an idol anime. Fucking uh, what? Excuse me? <laughs> <laughs> Andy hates idols. Yeah. But. And, uh, yeah, it's just like a really nice, competent, four-coma gag show. And I am thoroughly enjoying it like it's a like, there's nothing about it that really like stands out it's not like amazing in any way but every now and then like they they definitely have at least one keyframer on the team who's just extremely precocious and it will just drop into this like really fun you know cut of somebody you know like draw you know dramatically dropping their printouts like a dojiko would and scrambling around and the like just the like the like the comedic timing really pops on the show and the energy that it brings is sort of like uh, a sobiyasabase so mm. as much as it's about like you know cute girls giving, doing cute things it doesn't isn't really like is it's not afraid of the girls sort of like giving each other the business and you know one of the sort of like like the shy girl like he's like oh my special skill is i'm really great at making these like slapsticks and so you know that's why they always have one available to like smack each other upside the head when they're doing something stupid. And yeah, the the um the the like the bokeh sukomi sort of like mm-hmm. paper fans that they smack each other over the head and like nandianan. Yeah, like, I mean, remind me of what sort of the concept of the show. If I remember correctly, it's something to do with an all girls high school, and then yeah. the beautiful so girl these... really wants a boyfriend. Yeah, so like the, the the basic plot of the show, the uh the student council is pretty much like a like a one man show. Uh this like super genius girl, uh Rico, who no, sorry, uh not Rico, it's Maki, uh who is like she's sort of you know, she used to be the assistant uh uh student council president and then just sort of like moved into the job just by virtue of being so competent she has this like this like the secret that she wants to you know like have uh have a love life and which is something that's you know of course completely forbidden from this school because they're this elite prep school and blah 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 and so she ropes in the sort of like school tomboy badass rico because she's like oh there's this girl she's like you know, she's got so much personality. She's got so much fire. Like, she probably has boys dropping off of her, like, you know, flying around her like flies. And she just kind of, like, leans into that, you know, and sort of, like, it's like, actually, I, I've, you know, everybody I've ever gone after has rejected me. But I'm, she doesn't have to know that. And she just keeps digging this hole for herself of, like, giving this girl love advice, you know, just sort of for fun because she's, you know, on one hand, she doesn't have a lot of like other friends at the school. She's kind of isolated, you know, same as Maki sort of like on the other end of the scale. Uh, but of course the fact that their entire relationship is built on lies. is just something that keeps building up and building up as the, 
as the show progresses. And, you know, at the beginning of the series, they're beset by these... I was just going to say, isn't the beginning of the series something like she says something like, oh, yeah, I don't know anything about love, bar the manga that I read, which is loads. So I just sort of, I guess I'll just fudge it from what I remember from the manga that I love. Yeah. You know, sort of what happens, like, because I remember that's been, like, a big part of the comedic, like, crutch, is that they try the majority of the um, comedy stuff, like, the majority of the things that happen in Shonen, like, oh, I'm going to run into you with toast in my mouth, and then yeah. they take it to sort of comedic extremities. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's people playing out, playing out manga tropes as if they're a real reflection of how humans conduct relationships and romance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, they're, and they're beset by these you know, mysterious uh, figures who are just sort of messing with them and trying to expose them for doing these weird uh, games. And it turns out it's the previous student council president who had uh, sort of like sort of like you know like loud Mackie to take over as student council president as like a joke to be mean to her to like say okay I'm just gonna set her up to fail and then she succeeds and then doesn't have a place anymore and the old uh treasurer who's just this like you know like mega neck uh you know person obsessed with money who turns out she has you know a long distance boyfriend who lives in the next like neighborhood over but she just like sort of forgets that she has a boyfriend all the time and <laughs> doesn't so, like, seem very fond end, of him but much of the show is them sort of like doing what andy was saying is you know acting out these sort of comedy routines and then you know just as they're about to be exposed by this duo they realize that like oh you know if we you know if we give them the business you know, they'll be sad and then they all come together as friends you know the classic anime your enemies become your friends thing and now it's this student council sort of like trying to give secret love advice to all the other students who are asking advice for them, like Madoka Box, where, you know, they have to like... Uh, it's sort of like agony art type stuff. Andy, right? let him finish. Sorry, apologies, <laughs> apologies. And so, you know, they, you know, these five girls who have no romantic, you know, uh, experience in a school where romance is for, forbidden, trying to solve these girls' problems for them. And it's just like, it's just a very silly show, but it's just the, the strength of the animation, the strength of the comedic timing. It's, 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 it's great. It's fun. It's good stuff. Like, I'm just thinking of recent things. Like, um, is it similar to the way Love is War or deals with like this these characters who are just like too proud to admit the the complete lack of depth they have to their knowledge about love or is it more more stupid than proud i think would be would be like, <laughs> a lot of them are pretty pretty dumb in love yeah. lab and also with like love is war they very much love each other don't tell them well, these people they just want to have a boyfriend not really um and they're just very bad at doing it or they can't mm. literally uh, is there ever, ever any sign of that that actually <clears throat> any of them being actually successful and and or is it just that the comedy is just no that we're, we're, we're just going to keep having them try and and fail amongst themselves none of them are actually going to attempt to talk to a boy uh not so far like so far they've you know they're all pretty much just resigned to helping others secretly like i haven't seen the whole series that it could be going somewhere else and you know it's showing willingness to evolve so we'll see yeah i don't think it goes anywhere yeah no i think it's it's just it's entirely abstract knowledge to them that they that they recognize is important to have but they they have no men around 
mm-hmm. they don't really have they don't really know where to get this kind of knowledge so it is just like them playing out manga situations and i think the most important upshot is their friendships with each other rather than them learning the skills to get a guy yeah also comedy comedy is very important too which in many ways is sort of like like a parody or like a finger poking at sort of the do nothing moe show where there are no boys usually in any of these shows yeah one of them's one of them's got a pillow boyfriend that she keeps trying to get other people to hang out with and that's one of the running jokes too yeah and then she like develops a, a cross-dressing personality who all the other girls immediately fall in love with, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What about that too? <laughs> it's a good show. I mean, and it, and it watches fast if I remember too. Yeah. I mean, I know you're busy, Jeff, so watching is. fast is a, is a requirement, but, but still, I think it's like, <laughs> it's not a show where you're like, oh, I have to remember what happened in the last episode because I know what's going to go on in this episode. It's just like, oh, what else dumb is the main character going to do, going <laughs> to buffalo everyone into doing? Yep. Um, yep. These days, that is a premium for me. <laughs> do, do you think I'd enjoy it, Jeff? Because I, I, recently I've been rewatching some of Nozaki-kun, and that's that's got a very much like everyone being incredibly dumb about the tropes surrounding a, a, a romance manga, and mm-hmm. like it's it's got strong metafiction and very absolutely brilliant characters, but yeah. it, it also has an undercurrent of actual relationships creating tension in that and obviously the one thing you've said about the reason that i asked that question before was like what's does it what what gives it forward momentum is it just it's just energy of the gags rolling into each other there's no no plot yeah it's almost it's almost entirely that like every now and then you know something comes in from the outside where you know you know, oh no, we got a test that we have to study for, or we've got this request for help from somebody. So you know, sort of, you know, plot happens to them. It's they're not, you know, on long quests to find themselves and find love or anything like that. It's mostly just like you know, little excuses to have jokes and gags and stuff. Yeah. It's not, it's it ain't that deep. You know, I would yeah. I would hesitate to call Nozaki a deep show, but Love Lab is not as deep as Nozaki. <laughs> I mean, so Nozaki stuff- has at least something to say about the tropes of shoujo romance manga. Mm, yeah. And I don't think, I think that Love Lab would be flattered to be told that it also <laughs> has something to say about the tropes of, of romance manga. But I think it's largely just about like, isn't this dumb? Isn't this not, isn't, isn't fiction not real life? Which yeah. is always a very daring thing for a fictional show to be saying. Yeah. It's the execution that really makes it stand out for me more so than anything that's trying to do or say. It sounds like it's very much in the, the lineage of, of four panel adaptations then. Like... Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Actually I would, I was going to point out this doc, this, uh, this director has been, been working since 2006 as a director and his shows are Minami K, Mitsudomoe, Yuri, Yuru Yuri, Love Lab, Sabagebu, Himo Imaro-chan, Gabriel Dropout, and Uzumade. So yeah. that's like just what he does. <laughs> and, and that again is a is like a directorial style. Like you can see from um, Gabriel Dropout to Imaro-chan, you can see the comedy stylings and timings, and it's all perfect. Like he does it really, really well. And mm-hmm. it doesn't surprise me that Love Lab is the same guy. Um, well, he's been directing one one genre, one subgenre of anime for the past fourteen years. So, but he does <laughs> it fantastically. Surprise. You yeah. can knock him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Comedy um, directors definitely don't get the same name recognition as uh, more artistic ones. Even though yeah. I think it's we've we've 
you've you've commented a few times like looking watching a, a comedy anime and going oh yeah th- that director did these other comedies i really liked as well because and yeah. there clearly is like a, a specialized skill set to it which mm-hmm. it just isn't recognized generally I mean, or at least promoted yeah. I do think there's an intro. I can't remember the um, person who said it, but it was basically like you write a good um, comedy film and it's always going to be considered kind of a fluff piece unless yeah. you're the Monty Pythons. Um, you write a good a drama piece and it's going to be given a lot more serious nous and growth than like, a comedy film mm. would be. Uh, which is interesting. And and yeah. you're right, like getting timing down, like comedy timing is really fucking hard. Uh, and the fact that, and especially in an animated form, I imagine that's even harder to do. Uh, mm. So the fact that like Love Lab and this one director does it all so fucking well uh, is really impressive. Like it constantly hits jokes really, really well. Yeah. I well, think. you have to keep the inter- you have to keep the energy high with four coma. Otherwise, it feels like what it is, which is just like this is a joke. Okay, now we're going to the next four panel comic. This is yeah. a joke. Yeah. yeah. So you have to keep a momentum so that it doesn't feel like you're just throwing out jokes that, that aren't technically related. Yeah, I mean, so, like the marriage chain, you look at that and there's always sort of like an overarching story that connects the jokes. Um, even, I don't know whether they're related to the manga, whether they're just sort of side, for, like forced in a bit um, or like a central theme running through where he's like, oh, what should I do for Christmas? Mm. You know, it's, it's interesting. I, the, mm. the, the other animation from the studio that which is airing this season is um uh, sleepy princess so uh, there's obviously like s- some staff there which who just are great at um, doing in gags because sleepy princess yeah. has been like it's like a perfect example of that it, it's been like a, a supr- like so, sometimes you'll you'll just pick a, a a gag anime for the season and it'll just you'll think oh yeah this will be an okay thing and I'll, I'll watch a few episodes and it'll it'll pass some time and then when they do really just make you laugh every episode that you're you're incredibly thankful for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, cool. Well, let's go ahead and wrap it up there then. Tune in with us next episode where we are going to be talking about the end of the fall. 2020 anime season you got a little bit of a taste there with andy talking about love live and us talking about senyoku no secret trifa but there's a lot more stuff to talk about we'll try to taser john into coming on yeah. uh hopefully are you sure we're going to talk about the end of the fall animation season not about the end of all and evangelion and waving it bye bye <laughs> i i'm afraid i can't commit to that Duncan. so <laughs> i so if, if it happens it happens without me so remember, rate, review, and subscribe to us on whatever podcast platform you listen to. Find us on Twitter at KeyframesPod. Find us on Facebook, search for Keyframes Podcast. Email us questions or topics you'd like to hear us discuss, KeyframesPodcast at gmail.com. And of course, tell a friend. But, you know, not just any friend, then. I'd, personally, I'd choose the one who doesn't know anything about Norse mythology and decides to start a school idol group. I was wondering which one you're going to pick, and you picked all three. That's really <laughs> impressive. Congratulations, Andy. I'm not even begrudging you it. Well, and then really, really, really wants a boyfriend. I can't, can't quite work out how to get yes. one. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, like it's it's a real Venn diagram of of a person to recommend. Right, but I right, think you yeah. can you know that one. This this person probably needs something a bit a bit more substantial <laughs> in their life. It sounds like so. You should introduce them to anime through our so, podcast. Such a thing they need is anime. Yeah. Say goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. Bye.